everybody that's here, everybody that's online. Um, this is a really super day. Um, the, uh, it's kind of cool, too, because I have glasses now that I can read the podium. Yes, and I can see you if I take them off. The, um, <laughs> my old reading glasses, you regard, they look like I worked at the library, but they also were like designed to read up here, not down here, and so it was really hard to see. So I printed everything in really big you know, letters. But now with these glasses, I can see the podium. Amazing of modern science. Um, obviously, last week was Easter. Um, and, uh, of course, Easter is the celebration of resurrection. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it's what makes the promise of Christianity, we have the resurrection. Um, and it's interesting that we're doing Psalm 16, because Psalm 16 is actually called the second Easter. Um, it has the same theme in it uh, as we will see that Easter has in it the promise of the resurrection. Um, and no matter where your life is now, if you're a believer, you have the promise of the resurrection. Um, yeah, if that doesn't stir you up, uh, you need more coffee. Because, I mean, I'll tell you what, that is, that is really something. Um, so again, like I said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 16 today. I titled my message, The Path to Full and Everlasting Joy. Uh, and we're going to look at what David went through and how he found that path uh, to full and everlasting joy. Um, now, Psalm 16 is a really interesting psalm. It takes some really interesting twists and turns as you go along. So I encourage you uh, to take some notes because it's gonna, you're going to see how this kind of comes back together as we go through this. Now, we're told that the psalm is a miktam of David. Well, like typical, that word doesn't translate into English very well. Um, it's, it's a Hebrew word that has its own kind of meaning. Uh, but the closest that we can get to that um, is, is called a, a psalm of atonement. And there's, there's six psalms that are called miktams of David, right? 16 and 56 through 60. Um, so those, are the, those psalms um, are the ones. Now, they talk about... Uh, atonement. Now, atonement has a couple of really significant definitions, right? So the first definition of atonement is it's an individual's reconciliation with God by means of repentance and confession of one's transgressions, right? So it's that recognition, I messed up, I shouldn't have, forgive me God, I'll work on this again, right? It's that personal atonement. The second half of the word of atonement is the atonement we know through Jesus Christ, right? It's the reconciliation of God and humans brought about by redemptive life and death of Jesus Christ. Um, now, this is going to make uh, a lot more sense as we go through this psalm, but realize that David knew both of those atonements. He knew of the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. And that seems strange because it was many, many years before it happened, but you'll see in this psalm that he knew that. He had that promise that he was living on. So I'm going to try to make three points here uh, in this message. The first one is that David found reconciliation with God through his acts of repentance and confession. Now, anyone who knows the story of David, he was not perfect. He had some bumps in the road. Uh, you know, the Bathsheba thing, killing Uriah the Hittite, you know, those sorts of things. Those were kind of bad. But what did he do when Nathan, the prophet, confronted him about what he did? 
First thing he said, I have sinned against God. He recognized immediately he had sinned. He had fallen. So this process of righteousness and reconciliation doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we acknowledge we're not. And we recognize when we fall. Right? Unfortunately, that's the, until we're dead, we're still going to sin. It's just the reality of it. But the point of it is that we recognize it. Secondly, David knows that God will bring him through life and death into everlasting joy because God was his only refuge, his sovereign Lord, his supreme treasure, and his trusted counselor. And the same can be true for us today. We have the very same God that David depended on, we have. So he will be our refuge, our sovereign Lord, our treasure, our trusted counselor. And finally, David's confidence is due to the knowledge of the future atoning, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, a work that we know was fulfilled. We celebrated last week the work that was fulfilled. David just knew it was coming. And we're going to look at that today. Now, that may seem like a pretty tall order to cover all of that in a message today. But I'll tell you what, it's an amazing psalm. Psalm 16 is just an amazing psalm. And you recall that in um, Acts, Peter quotes that psalm as he's talking about the uh, process of, of knowing Jesus Christ. Right? So he calls on the fact that David knew that. David knew about the atoning work. Uh, and so we're going to see that David's belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually one of the main ideas underlining this, this psalm, even though it doesn't say it anywhere in the psalm. But much like the foundation of a skyscraper is holding up the rest of the skyscraper, David's knowledge of the resurrection, the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ holds up the rest of the psalm. And one of the amazing things about the Bible is that that truth is continuous through Scripture. One, I tell people, I says, the Christian worldview to me is one of the most cohesive, coherent, consistent worldview that exists because the same truth is true across the entire pages of Scripture. You can rely on it because it's solid all the way across. And so the trust, the truth rather, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ holds up all of Scripture. All right. Um... So the psalm breaks down into three parts, basically. The first part, um, I kind of call David's petition. Um, so verse one, the beginning of verse one says, preserve me, O God. Now, you can get this sort of sense of urgency in David's voice, right? Preserve me. You know, this sort of desperation. Preserve me. And petition is an important word because petition is a solemn request to a superior authority. So David is going to God and saying, preserve me. Now, we don't know right away what he's preserving him from. We're going to find that out later. Trust me, that's where we're headed. So David's clearly concerned about something significant, and he's preserving God for preservation and for protection. Now, normally I use the NASB, but today we use the ESV because it, that word preserve is a better word. Uh, and you'll see why when we get down later in this scripture, but um, it's, a, it's a better translation when you see what David is actually talking about. 
All right. Um, now, this petition to be preserved colors everything else in the psalm. The rest of the psalm sits on this idea of preserve me. Um, oh, thank you. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes. Um, many of you know I can't stand for long periods of time, so I forgot. Thank you, Dennis. I forgot that they put the stool back there. With this, I, I can't do both the stool and the, the stick. So, <laughs> all right, um, let's move on. So the second part of the psalm, David transitions from petition through declaration and exaltation of who God is for him and how knowing that affects his p- petition and his confidence, okay? So in Psalms uh, 16, 1 through 8, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. All right, so we see verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So what we see here is this petition turns into a declaration. Basically, he says, preserve me, for I take refuge. Or, God, because I know of your protection, your refuge, I know I'll be preserved. He's making a declaration. He declares that he knows God is the perfect refuge for him. And David goes all the way through Psalms 1, verses 1 through 8, declaring and exalting what God is for him as a way of strengthening his hope because of this God will, in fact, bring about the preservation, bring about his preservation. So in this process, as we saw here in the, in the beginning, that, that there's four declarations here that David makes as he goes to these verses 1 through 8. Um, so the first thing, like I said, he declares and exalts that God is his refuge. He says to the God, you are the safe place I'm turning to. Um, I'm not going to turn to any other places for safety. Um, I know that you're my safest place to go. So declaration one is that God is David's only and safest refuge. Right? He knows go to God for safety. So we think of ourselves, where do we go for refuge? Where do we go for safety? Who do I know I can absolutely rely on? God. It's the only one. As much as we want to rely on our friends and family and stuff like that, there are times they can't be relied on, or there are times they can't come out and help you with what you need. They can't protect you. But God can, no matter where you are. God can protect you. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, like always, uh, the English is really not nice to this verse at all. It translates several words as Lord. But that's not what's in the original Hebrew. The Hebrew says, I say to the Lord Yahweh, you are my Lord Adonai. Those are two very different meanings of God. 
So in English, it kind of says, David's saying, I say to Yahweh, who is God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of the Exodus, God Almighty, you are my Adonai, my Lord, my master, my sovereign. A sovereign is someone who exercises supreme authority over something, typically a country, right? We think of a king who's sovereign. So David is saying, God, you are my sovereign. You exercise control completely over me. So that's declaration number two. God has sovereign rule over David's life. Nothing else rules his life. Now, you remember what happened right after David, right, is Solomon. And Solomon starts okay, but then what happens? You know, he gets 300 wives and 700 concubines. I can't imagine how he thought that was a good idea. But he, <laughs> he certainly went off the tracks, right? God was no longer his sovereign, and that caused issues. Um, but David is saying that God and only God is in charge of his life. Um, and then the second part of verse 2, David says of God, I have no good apart from you. So God is David's supreme treasure. It's his highest treasure. The fact that he has God is the most good he can have in his life. There is no good apart from God. And all the good things in David's life are good things because God gave them to him. He knows all good comes from God. So God is supreme treasure over everything else in and everything else. So again, Declaration 3, God is David's supreme treasure. So David has made three of these four declarations about who God is for him. And now he's going to take a little turn while he makes a comparison of those who have God in them and those who don't. All right, so verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Those who follow the one true God are the excellent ones, and I enjoy being with them. And now in those days, the saints were those that still held to the truth of God. Recall that there is all sorts of folks, all sorts of people worshiping all sorts of gods. And a lot of people were getting tangled up. You know, they would, they, would, they would do kind of God and kind of something else. They would get their, you know, the old, I used to say, one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock. <laughs> All you're going to get out of that is wet. Um, and that's kind of where they're living. They're kind of living this mix and back and forth, right? But no, David's not saying, David is saying, no, I enjoy those people who are in God. Those are the excellent ones. Those are the ones I delight in. Um, and those are the people that held God as their safest refuge, sovereign Lord, and supreme treasure. Right? The very same things that David is saying he is holding God to. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, today, the saints are those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and count him as their safest refuge, sovereign Lord, and greatest treasure. Right? And, and I'm not, we understand that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? So I'm saying the event of salvation is very much all Jesus, right? But that creates a transition in your life. You will not be the same person if you truly have accepted Jesus Christ, right? Once we accept Jesus Christ, there's this radical change that goes on in our life. 
and something other than what used to be in charge now is in charge. Um, and if we listen to the Holy Spirit, we will grow in that process of God becoming our safest refuge, our greatest treasure, um, etc. Now, this, of course, encourages some questions. Um, are the people we enjoy spending the most time with fellow saints, or are they other people that we have more fun with? Um, one of the first things that happened when I came to know the Lord was I knew people that I could no longer associate with. I just knew right away, I go, ah, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, and it was, you know, again, for me, I was old. As I, many of you know, I was 33 when I came to know the Lord, so I'd had a lot of water under the bridge. And um, when, when I came to know the Lord, there was people I went, yeah, that can't happen anymore. It's, just, it's not good to be there. Um, and it was, it was really kind of weird, right? Because you tell people like, hey, would you like to go to Hooters this weekend? No. Why not? Uh... I'm not comfortable there anymore. I don't know why, but it's what I'm told, so I'm going to not go there. So um, it, it's, it's, it's this transition that occurs, right? Um, and the other part that comes out of this is, are we the saints that people want to be around? Are we the Christians that people want to be around? I don't know about you, but I have found people who claim to be Christian that are very annoying and that I don't like to be around. I mean, they're complaining, they're, you know, they're judgmental, they're pointing at all the things that are wrong in the world. I remember I went to a church, um, I used to travel a lot, it was a church in Chicago, and um, it was one of those churches that is kind of dying, you know, where like most of the people are like me, old, and uh, although I was younger then, uh, but these three kids came in, and I say kids because they were probably in their early 20s, um, and back then they had like these hip hugger pants, and, um, you know, they're definitely not dressed like everybody else at church. And these two older ladies that were sitting next to me started going, <laughs> talking about the way these kids were dressed they were in church. And it really annoyed me. So being the kind of person I am to be sensitive to other people, I turned around and said to them, at least they're here. They were unpleased. Uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, right, there's... There's people that are, that are Christians, you just don't like being around, you know, but that's not what we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. People should look and go, hey, it's Eric. You know, I, I'll tell you later, I was in the hospital. I, it's it's kind of weird because they like know me, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's great. I mean, people know me. They see me coming. It's like, woohoo, you know, so not that I'm like trying to get there. Don't get me wrong, but so, <laughs> all right. So, that's going to be contrasted against the group of people in verse 4. So, verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So, this second group of people that are chasing some other god. Now, if you recall David's time, there is all sorts of other gods to follow. I mean, there was Molech and Baal, and I mean, there was no shortage of, of other gods. Um, and in fact, some of the pagan religions, specifically the Canaanite god Molech, people would sacrifice their children as a worship to Molech. So that's why we see this part about, you know, I will not drink from their blood offerings. I mean, to me, the whole idea is kind of gross. But, the, um, but David is saying, I'm not going to partake in any of that. I'm not going to partake anywhere in these other religions. Um, I'm not going to pay homage to any of these folks. I'm not going to mention their names. I'm not going to do anything that shows that I have any support for these groups at all. 
So David is all in all with God and wants nothing to do with any of the other things around him that are not about God. And he follows that other gods will just bring sorrow into his life and he wants no part of it. And the question faces us today. Are we all in God? Or are there other gods that we are following that are going to bring sorrow in our life? Now, we think of other gods as necessarily being other religions, but you can have all sorts of gods. I say everybody's got a god. Your job could be a god. Your um, relationships can be your god. Uh, money can be your god. Prestige can be your god. You know, sexual desires, impurities can be your god. And God, David is saying, no, you can't follow any of these other gods. To follow any of these other gods as your god will just bring you sorrow. And he's saying, don't do that. So I have to ask myself, am I totally satisfied with God? Am I totally content with God? You know, do I say, I just remember a while back there was someone that said, well, if you could get anything for God for Christmas, what would you get him? And they said, a cell phone, so he could at least text me back. I'm like, amen. (laughs) So if I was going to ask God for anything, I'd be like, man, would you could communicate a lot more with me. I'd appreciate it. A text would be really cool. Um, but the, um, but then, is, is God your everything? Is he completely satisfied? Are you completely satisfied with God? Now, this is a neat verse, uh, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. <clears throat> now, as we saw before in the Psalms, it's not unusual for the psalmist to repeat themselves. And that's what happens here. This idea of this verse actually kind of repeats the verse of uh, the idea of verse two. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Right? So the Lord is his chosen cup, his chosen portion. You hold my lot. So here, the Lord is the chosen portion of life for David. Now, I think of it this way as if David is standing in front of a huge table with all a plates full of whatever the world can offer. All sorts of delectable temptations laid out before it. And in glasses or cups, there's all sorts of libations of, of whatever drink could be that he could possibly imagine. And David walks up to the table and picks up God, cup of God, and walks away from the table. He's saying, God, you are my portion. You are my cup. I want nothing to do with what's on this table other than you. Again, that's just another way of saying that to David, God was his highest treasure. Now, the second half of the verse has an interesting concept. You hold my lot. Now, if you recall from the places in the, in the New and Old Testament, right, a lot was a way of determining things. So if you recall, they picked Matthias uh, to replace Judas by casting lots, right? Um, And so a lot is like throwing dice or or like uh, drawing straws. And what David is saying, you are my lot. You control the results of my lot, right? Which is just another way of saying, God, you are sovereign. You are in control. Nothing is going to happen to me other than what you allow. 
So again, we have this, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. David is saying, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant paces. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, what does this mean that he says that lines have fallen in pleasant paces? And what is this beautiful inheritance that he has? Well, of course, there's all sorts of lines, right? There's, there's fishing lines, there's clothes lines, there's boundary lines, there's border lines. There's all sorts of lines. So what kind of line is it that he's talking about here? Well, we can get a hint of this by looking at verse 11, because the same word that's translated as pleasant places in verse 6, in verse 6, rather, is translated as pleasures in verse 11, right? So what he's saying is that these lines close me in in pleasant places. They're boundaries of behavior and belief, right? And God is saying, if I stay within these lines, if I hold on to these truths, then God will keep me in pleasant places. Um, and what is the beautiful place that we will inherit if we follow God and hold him as sovereign? It's the reconciled relationship that we have with God. The fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, we can today go to God as his children, fully reconciled to him. And the eternal inheritance, we spend eternity in heaven. We know that in the very end of all of this, once this is gone, we spend eternity with heaven, with God. Now, whether I'm not going to get into the eschatological argument exactly where heaven is, and just leave it at that. <laughs> all right. Um, anyway, like I said, and, and the cool part of this is David knows about his internal inheritance, right? Even though the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a long way in the future. David knew, all, David knew it was going to happen. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So God is not only David's refuge, sovereign Lord, and supreme treasure. He's also David's counselor. Now, clearly that makes sense, right? Because in other words, if he's not your counselor, how are you going to know what the, what the refuge is, what the sovereign is? You wouldn't know all that stuff. So it makes sense that he's the trusted counselor. So he affects how you experience God, right? So is God your trusted counselor? Do you go first to God? You know, it's amazing. People, people are like, um, have you read this? Um, if you haven't, then you're missing out on a bunch of really good information. A lot of trusted counsel is in here. That's why it, it got written. Um, right? It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, and it gives you trusted counsel. Um, and David holds God near his heart, knowing that it will instruct him in the ways he should go. If you find yourself in danger and you do not know where to go, you can go to God, and he will give you direction. He will give you, point you to the refuge. He will give you guidance, and he will give you wisdom. Through his counsel, he tells you how to find him, his preservation, his protection. And there's this dynamic interaction between God's words and our hearts. If the Holy Spirit is truly indwelling, you will hear God's counsel. And right that verse, in the night also my heart instructs me. 
I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of night where I start thinking, what should I do, what should I do, what should I do? And then this bell goes off, so to speak, and he goes, oh, yeah, that makes sense, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, it's like he's, the Spirit says, okay, you've asked enough, go to bed. Here's the answer. <laughs> so it's, it's um, you know, and we're told that God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So his teaching is our treasure. He exercises his authority and sovereignty through counsel to us. All right, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Now, verse 8 sort of caps off this section between the end of verse 1 and 8, right? Because he's saying here is that, remember, we started with preserve me, and then he explains why he knows God will preserve him. He is confident. So he goes from preserve me, oh my gosh, to, hey, I'm confident. We're good. I shall not be shaken. Right? So we know that David has made God his perfect refuge, his divine sovereign, his highest treasure, and his counsel. And he knows that since I can count on all that, I'm good to go. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be shaken. Right? And we kind of see that as we approach situations in life, or we should, right? When we're trying to figure out where we go, right, we petition God for help. We assert who God is, which brings about confidence through the heralding and exalting of God and all that he is and our confidence in him. So when we say, hey, God, what do I want, I, what do I do? We exalt at the same time. I know you are God, right? So I kind of think of the synopsis of this section in Psalm 16, basically says, oh God, I need your help. I trust in you. You are my refuge. You have been around forever and you are in charge. You are a, the sovereign in this world. Nothing happens that you do not allow. Everything I have that is good has come from you and you will guide and counsel me, therefore I am not shaken. So think about when you pray, you pray, God, I need help with this, I need to help with this decision, because I know you are God, and I can trust what you're gonna tell me, and you have my best interest at heart, and you love me, and you have died for me, therefore I can take my prayers to you, and I know I will get good counsel. All right, verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now, if you've gone, from, if you've gone to this church very long, you'll know that whenever you see therefore, you're going to ask yourself, what is it therefore? <laughs> right? It's very Danism. But, the, um, but we see that here, right? So he goes through all of the stuff through one through eight. Then he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So verse 9 starts uh, the transition point, part 3 of the transition there. And it uses that great word, therefore, and he expresses that 1 through 8, David expressed all that God is for him, and therefore the results is in a glad heart. And because of this confidence he has in God, his whole being is joyful. He is secure in his circumstances, whatever will play out. Now verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, verse 10 kind of seems out of place. 
kind of seems like, well, where did this come from, right? Because we're going through all this good stuff, and all of a sudden, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and the Holy One will not see corruption. So what David has gone through, this whole long process of explaining how safe and secure in his circumstances, and we finally discover in verse 10 the what he is asking to be preserved from. Right? So David is confident that he will not be abandoned in Sheol and that his body will not end up in corruption. So what does that mean? Well, David's going to die and he's going to get put in a grave and his body's going to rot away. So what does it mean? Well, I think it's David is aware of the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. This is from Nathan the prophet. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish this kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Davidic covenant. David knows that he will die and will lie down in the grave and rot away just like the rest of the kings. Right? And he also knows that God will raise a king through one of David's descendants, and that will establish the kingdom of God that will last forever. This king will end all succession of kings because you won't need another king after this one shows up. Unlike all the other kings who had to overcome death in the sense of this enemy that they all fall into, this king conquers death. David knew that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings, would come and overcome death. And we see this prophetic truth in Acts 2, verses 25 and 28, where this is quoted. And then we continue on in Acts 2, 29 through 36. Brothers, I may say confidently, say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, and he was neither abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for, a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David knew the prophetic truth of the coming of Jesus Christ. And on that, he put his faith. Now we have, on the other side, we know of Jesus Christ. We celebrated the resurrection last week. But David is holding the hope, believing in what God told him, that Jesus Christ was coming. And David knows that he will join this king in eternity. Verse 11. 
You made, known, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knew that he would die and that he would also be rescued from death by the eternal joy that would sit at the right hand of God. And the great saints of the Old Testament were deemed righteous because they believed in the future promise. And we are righteous because we believe in the delivered promise of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's the question. Does the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the grave dwell in you? If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then it does. And just like Jesus and David, you will rise from the dead and live eternity with the Father. And because of that promise, as Christians, we can live a radical life, servanthood to the world, because we know how it ends for us. We aren't trying to protect all these things that are temporal. We are trying to live in this world to serve Jesus Christ, serve the world. We have the Spirit of God exactly the same as it was in Psalm 16. And like David before, I pray that each of us acknowledge that God is your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, your sovereign Lord, and your trusting counselor. Now in closing, I want to say, you know, uh, a little while ago I had surgery. Um, it's a trapeziectomy. Anyway, fancy word of saying it's how you fix an arthritic thumb. Um, but I thought to myself, um, you know, going through surgery is, um, well, for me, it's not a very unique event. Um, this is surgery number 17. Um, and I don't pad my numbers. I only count when I had to go in an operating room. I don't count all the stuff they fixed in the emergency room. Um, yeah. And so the, um, I've had a lot of practice in trusting in God. Um, and faith is a muscle. Faith is exercise. And so I've had that opportunity to get plenty of exercise. <laughs> but, you know, this psalm reflects those very same confidences and priorities that we have when we're going into an operating room, right? I have incredible peace going into an operating room. I just don't worry about it. I know it's going to be okay. I know it's going to come out okay. I, most, well, so far, I've come out the other side. And if I don't come out the other side, I know where I'm going is a great place. Donna's probably a little less excited about that option than I am, but hey, you know, I have confidence, right? I know that God is my refuge. Trusting in him is the safest thing I can do. He's the safest place I can go, and he's got this. And you know, before we decide on a surgery, we don't do this haphazardly. We pray, we bring it to God. Hey, is this the right answer? Is this the solution to this issue? My prep nurse was a Christian, and that's always cool because I get to talk with them about their faith and what they're going through. And, and like I said, I think I have my own bed over at Banner. Um, I, I, I know so many of these folks, and it's great. They're like, oh, Eric's back, you know, and we'll go have a conversation, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's mostly, believe it or not, it's mostly staff. 
you know, patients are really cool to talk to too, but I mean, most of the time it's staff. Um, and so it really allows me a chance to, to bring faith and comfort to people. Um, my anesthesiologist, she asked me, how did I want to experience the surgery? She said I had two options. I could either be oh, kind of awake and experience all the stuff and hear what they're doing and going through that kind of place, or I could be completely asleep um, and just wake up on the other side. And I told her, much like the trip through my inevitable personal death into eternalness with God, I want it to be a complete surprise. Um, I don't want to experience the part in the middle at all. <laughs> so she was like, okay, take a couple of deep breaths, and next thing I know, I'm in the other side. I am <laughs> waking up on the other side. I'm like, yes, Lord, we did it again. <laughs> We're on the other side, you know. Um, and so anyway, the, you know, the surgeon, you know, went through the talk about the process and everything went well and all those kind of thoughts. And my very first thoughts coming out of this is, thank you, God. Once again, you are my safest refuge. You are my greatest treasure. You are my sovereign Lord, and you are my counselor. You are there for me, you love me, and I can count on you. And when the days are over and my trials are complete, I have the promise of an eternal life with the Father. And David knew, as we know as believers, God makes known to us the path of life. His presence, his path, is where you'll find the fullness of joy. And at his right hand, you will find pleasures forevermore. Lord, we are so grateful that you love us. We are so grateful that you watch over our every step. We are so grateful that you are in charge of this world. We are so grateful that you speak to us, that we can share our thoughts with you and you can share your thoughts with us. So Lord, as we go forth this week, let everyone know that you are there. You are by their side. You are with them. They are not alone. In your precious and holy name, amen.